Bible Live. I'm Robert Martin, Director of the City Bible Forum in Melbourne, and I'm your host for the show. Logos is Greek for word or message, and Logos Live engages the Christian message before a live audience in Melbourne. Today, we're recording live at St. Jude's Anglican Church in Parkville. And do we have a live audience here today? Are they alive? Yes, we have some alive people out there. We also aim to have a little bit of fun. Who said exploring the big questions of life shouldn't be enjoyable? Today's topic is subdue or sustain environmental conservation and the scriptures. And we're privileged to have James Hornby join us. Now, James is actually the pastor of this church. James has previously worked for the Department of Sustainability and Environment and also Vic Forest. He's married with young kids and therefore looks constantly tired. (laughs) Hopefully he's awake now. Please welcome James Hornby. Welcome, James. I'm pleased to be able to welcome you to the church that you normally speak at. Um, (laughs) I'm even more delighted that they gave you a clap. We need to do this more often. (laughs) That's terrific. Now, James, we're talking about today subdue or sustain environmental conservation in the Bible. Now, you've had some experience in this area. You've worked for Department of Sustainability and Vic Forests. So what did you do? So I had kind of three roles that evolved. I started as a forest technician and worked as a forest officer and left the department as a civil culturalist. How do you be a forest technician? Like, aren't they just trees? It's the nicest title you would get for, like, a dog's body as a forester. So it's kind of like the forester's sort of slave. Uh, Yeah, so you do a lot of data recording and things like that. Being a forester is a bit more exciting. That's when you get to manage people and cut down trees and and, um, drive four drives really fast. Cut down trees. Did you sleep all night? Uh, Work all day? You ate your lunch? I'm a lumberjack. (laughs) Did you ever sing the lumberjack song? I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night. You don't sing that song? Well, did you do something in a previous life, Rob? Well, I used to work in insurance, but that puts people to sleep. (laughs) Well, no... We didn't, no self-respecting forester would sing that song. Okay. Uh, and silviculturalists wouldn't even know the song. Okay. So yeah. Silviculturalist, what, what does that mean? What's that? Yeah, a, a silviculturalist is someone who kind of specialises in the growing of trees. So I was kind of a part tree scientist, uh, part forest manager. Yeah, so a typical day is quite... It's quite a bit to it, a, a nice variety. Some of it's boring, like writing policy, which you implement. I don't know if you've ever implemented policy to a group of guys that drive a bulldozer for a living <laughs> and try to get them on, on board. Uh, so it's, at least it's interesting, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's that kind of part to it. Civil uh, culturalists are kind of like considered, at least in the commercial forestry realm, regeneration specialists. So if you harvest a coop, you cut down all your trees, except for the important environmental ones if you fail to regenerate that to an appropriate level prescribed by the government you pay a hefty fine so if they're unsure how to do that maybe it's because of the species composition or the the incline or whatever it might be uh you'll call in a civil culturalist who'll come and assess it and go this is what you need to do to regenerate that piece of land right so you're not actually spending time just out in forests well you do that too so like also you're responsible for seed banks uh throughout australia of various species so i had uh probably 15 to 20 contractors who would go out with their chainsaws climb trees cut down branches harvest seed and it's like it's there's a fair bit of money in it so depending on the species you'd be looking in this was 10 10 15 years ago around about four to five thousand dollars a kilo for eucalypt seed. Uh, so, yeah, in that way we've got a reserve if 
a fire or something goes through. Yeah. So now, as a silviculturalist, you used a chainsaw. You used yeah. to use a chainsaw in your job? I did, yes. Yep. It was quite fun, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was on your t- you had a tool belt or something? Your chainsaw was kind of on your tool belt as you were walking? Well, you, got your, you, know, you got your knife, you got your machete, and you got your chainsaw kind of hanging? I feel like you're setting me up. But <laughs> I did actually have a tool belt. Yeah. No, I didn't hang a chainsaw. <laughs> it's not particularly practical, okay. but yeah. Okay, well, anyway, we try to have a bit of fun with Logos Live. So I've got a quick quiz to test your knowledge I am on being set up. chainsaws. No, no, no. Okay, okay. which of the following is false? The very first chainsaw was developed in the 18th century as a surgical tool for use during childbirth. It was used to cut cartilage from the woman's pelvis to allow the baby to pass through. Or is it two? Lyrebirds, the birds which feature on the Australian 10-cent coin, can mimic almost anything, including other birds, car alarms, and a realistic impression of foresters using chainsaws. Or is it three? A recent invention in Japan is a form of chainsaw to be used by dentists to remove stubborn plaque. Sure. Now I'm going for which one's true. Which one of those is false? False. So two of those is actually true. Oh, dear. Really? (laughs) (laughs) That's not good. Uh, Well, I was going to go with the library being true, so I'm just going to throw that and say that's false. Because the other two, like, I can't pick pick between which one of those I want to be true and which one of those I want to be true. <laughs> okay, right, yeah. It's actually three is false. A recent invention in Japan is a... You know really what gives it away? What's that? The word recent. Because chainsaws aren't particularly recent. Like, my oh, grandfather had one. Like, well, it was know. meant to be a form of chainsaw. Oh, that you, okay. I mean, I just can't quite imagine going to the dentist and saying, OK, I'm going to get the, the sucker, now the chainsaw. Really well, I can't imagine pulling mine out of the shed while my wife's in labour going, <laughs> sit still, honey. Well, that's, a, that's actually the, where the first chainsaw was developed. Yeah, anyway, sure. yeah. OK, this, the second question maybe is a little bit easier. Uh-huh. Name three movies which feature chainsaws. <laughs> All right, can I go, like, Chainsaw Massacre 1, 2 and 3? Is there, like... Well, you can, yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay, that's pretty easy, yeah, yeah. Again, the final question relates to the history of chainsawing. Now, to, to do this properly, I googled Chainsaw History Quiz and I found a page which had the ultimate chainsaw quiz. Uh-huh. Now, yep. here's the first question in the ultimate chainsaw quiz. Yep. Listen very carefully. It's not a trick question. Right. Where are the cutting teeth located on a chainsaw? It's multiple choice. A, on the chain, B, on the engine, or C... On the pump. Be careful. <laughs> you really want me to answer I that? I do want you to answer that. Where are the All cutting right, teeth we'll, located? We'll go with the chain. Correct, and that's why it's called a chainsaw. Wow. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So congratulations, Dad. In our quiz, you got two out of three right, which means that you pass. I said, please, give him a big hand. Okay, now you've been talking about chainsaws a bit, but... How do chainsaws relate to sustainability? Really, a chainsaw is just a tool, right? So if you use it as a tool, so as a silviculturist, rather than cut down trees, which I must admit in my early years was fun, you can keep trees standing by using a chainsaw to cut down branches and things like that. So you can use it as a cultivating tool. You can use it to clear growth as a fire hazard prevention thing. I mean, there's a variety of ways you can use it. There is a connection between chainsaws and sustainability, but what about, what prompted you to go into conservation in the first place? Well, probably like almost every person that gets into forestry, uh, a love of the environment. So a love of the bush, a love of bushwalking as a kid, appreciating forests and just looking for some sort of way of having that as a part of my day-to-day existence. And I think that was, like, you know, a lot of people might have this assumption about what a typical forester might be like, but a lot of the people I went through 
forestry with would be more inclined, you'd be more inclined to look at them and stereotype them as hippies or, uh, you know, greenies, etc. Mm-hmm. But they're people that love the environment. That's, that's, that was my love too. So people care about the environment, but now you're actually the pastor of a church. But there's a bit of a disconnect between Christianity and environmental care. Christians aren't generally renowned for a strong stance on environmental issues. In fact, Christian theology has actually been blamed as the cause of the modern ecological crisis. So Lynn Wright in the 1960s wrote a very influential paper where he claimed that Christians were the problem. Uh, He said the reason being he felt that nature had no reason for existence save to serve man. Creation was a slave to the whim of humanity. Now, this was his assessment of the Christian attitude towards God's creation. What are your thoughts? Sure. Well, I think, I think I'd begin by saying that the attitude and teaching of some Christian pastors would seem to lend support to that. So whatever, whatever is said from here, I think it's worth acknowledging that to some degree, there's some truth to it amongst individuals. A lot of their arguments were about the fact that it was kind of like the logical endpoint of what Christians were seen to believe. So because of what we think Christians believe, uh, if that's what they believe, then it makes it's logical, therefore, that they don't care about the environment. Well, maybe it's a good time to actually open up the Scriptures. Sure. And as a part of Logos Live, we reflect on the Scriptures, the Logos. And today's Logos comes from the Old Testament book of Genesis. Now, Genesis means origins or beginnings, and Genesis describes the origins of our universe, our world, and humanity. Now, Genesis 1 is a description of the creation of the world over seven days, and it says in verses 26 to 28, as God is completing his works of creation, then God said... Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So how does this more specifically speak to Lynn White's objection where he seems to understand the relationship between humans and creation as exploitative? Well, it comes down to uh, your understanding of the words dominion Mm -hmm. and subdue and how you fit that in the rest of the biblical narrative. Sure, yeah. So well, many would say, well, dominion is domination, right? That's so what's meant, that's the exploitative sense that you're talking about. But I, I mean, I, I personally wouldn't say that. The word dominion is a word about power or authority. It describes something. It's, it's what it is. It's power or authority. Domination is the use of that power or authority. And I think that's an important distinction there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be my initial yep. comments. But as we just look at that, there's sort of three characters Mm -hmm. which are described in that section there's god there's humans and then there's this created order how do they interact with each other and and how is that important one thing's clear from that is that god is the creator Mm -hmm. that there's a distinction and a separation between creator and creation Mm -hmm. so god is an entity god is the creator Uh, then there's the creation humanity and nature Mm-hmm. And so there's a connection there, there's an interdependence, uh, and yet there's also within that interdependence still separation and distinction in terms of role. So within the context of uh, humankind and nature uh, is these roles that humankind's given to have dominion or to subdue. Yeah. So, so let's go into a bit more detail, what, sure. what do you mean by dominion? So if you go into the word dominion or to have dominion over, the word is radar, right, which literally means 
rule. Okay, so we're talking about again. It's a form of it's about authority. So to have dominion is to rule. So I think that Aussies like when we hear the word rule, we we have a negative connotation to that. To rule, you can rule well or you can rule poorly. Ruling in of itself isn't a moral thing, right? It's not neither good nor bad. I think we tend to just hear that and automatically apply some sort of moral connotation, generally a negative one. Yep. So, but I don't think that's in the text, right? I think it says we're to, to rule. Uh, the other word there, subdue, is a, is a more interesting word. There's a bit more... Um, so what, is, what, is, what does it mean to subdue? Sure. So the word is uh, kabash, and I said it as an Aussie. So I can understand, right, how people would look at the, at the Bible and diligently try to explore it and come up with some of these understandings because that word is used in the Old Testament in all sorts of ways. It's used uh, to denote assault, molestation, trampling or treading. So, they're, they're, you know, no one's going to say, oh, that's a really good thing. And people will see that word and go, well, perhaps that's what it means in terms of God's creation. But there's another sense to the word which I think comes out in the Genesis account here, yep. which is the definition is to set limits. How does that make sense in terms of creation? It's to do with the, the concept of fruitfulness. So we're also told to, to go and be fruitful and to multiply. Mm-hmm. So what is it then to, as humans who are called to rule, what is it then to allow creation to be fruitful and, and to multiply? And I think to do that well, to rule well, means to set limits in terms of how you go about managing, if you will, to use that word, creation. I think those two words, understanding them well enough, is enough. I don't think you need any more than that to have a right understanding of how we're to treat the earth. However, even if, like even if you said, you know what, I believe Genesis 1, 26 to 28 means to dominate, it means to trample, it means to tread, even if you took that and that's, that was your meaning. I think the rest of scripture actually speaks to how we're to treat creation anyway. So uh, an equally important verse for me is Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And these two words, till and keep, are really interesting words because they also prescribe what man is meant to do in terms of the earth, creation. That word till, that that word is abad, and that, that... word is often translated as labor or work, but the primary sense of the word is actually to serve. Okay, so if you were to read that, you would say, well, Adam was put into the garden to serve the earth. Okay, so now trying to, we're trying to hold in our heads this idea of dominion or rule and this idea of um, setting limits, if you will, or subduing, and now we're told we're also to serve creation. And then there's that fourth word, which is to keep the earth, and that word is the word shamar which, again, literally means to protect, to guard, to watch over, to preserve. So then we have this sense of, well, what is it that humanity was given in the creation account to do with the earth? Well, actually to rule it, but at the same time to serve it. So then what the Bible effectively says is to rule the earth as God rules his people. So how does a good God rule? Well, the way a good God rules is the way that we're to rule, and we rule by serving, and how we serve is to protect and care for the land. And I think that comes straight out of the Bible. So in that way, you could say that subduing it does relate to sustainability in some way? Absolutely. Because humanity is given the earth, if you will, to use it, okay? So we're to use it, but at the same time, we're to care for it. So how do we do that? We do it 
if you will use the word sustainability, we do it by setting limits to our, an appropriate usage. So how do we use what we've been given appropriately in such a way that we at the same time care for it and maintain, again go back to Genesis, maintain its fruitfulness? So rather than necessarily the Christian having less of a reason to care for the environment, it could actually be that they have a more of a reason. So I don't think we have more of a reason because I think every person is made in the image of God and therefore has a mandate to care for the environment. But I think we might better understand the reasons that we have or we might better understand the compulsion to care for our environment so our motivations might be stronger. Now, modern thinker and writer Tim Keller once tweeted, your view about how the world will end affects how you live today. And some Christians believe the world will kind of burn up when Jesus returns to judge, so it doesn't really matter how we treat the environment. In fact, another prominent American pastor was once quoted as saying, I know who made the environment and he's coming back and going to burn it all up, so yes, I drive an SUV. Um, This same pastor also said, if you drive a minivan, you're a mini-man. Sure. (laughs) Does that undercut what you've been saying here from Genesis 1 and 2? No, not at all. Somebody who says that, perhaps hasn't dealt with as carefully the text as you might. Uh, but there's a, there's a basic view, a discontinuity, continuity view, and you might fall on one or the other. So a discontinuity view as a Christian is to say, at the end of the day, it all burns up and God will make something completely new. All right? And the Bible talks a lot about a new heaven and a new earth. And there's some verses in the Bible that lend people towards thinking about this idea of discontinuity. But there's also a thread of continuity that talks about the renewing of the earth, that the earth and the heavens will be restored. Now, irrespective of whether you, where you end up on that, and the guy you quoted clearly ends, is on the discontinuity spectrum, how I care for this good earth that God's created is if, as you will, a, a practice run. Right. Because one day when I and the Bible talks about this in a very physical way, one day when I live eternally in this recreated or restored heaven and earth, the mandate of of God to to care for the earth won't have changed. Mm. I don't think it undercuts it at all. Okay, well, we go to the other side. There's also certainly a real Christian imperative to environmental care, but this can also be overdone, can't it? Like there can be a tendency to worship the creation itself. Can environmentalism become like a a pseudo-religion? Yeah, absolutely. It's pandeism, it's that God, the divine and nature are one. I recently signed up to the Wilderness Society and I was talking to a great guy, um, John. John and I had a really great conversation, but as we were talking, we both talked about our care for the environment. And his care for the environment came from the fact that he believed in Mother Earth. And his belief in Mother Earth drove him passionately to stand on street corners and sign people up. And I talked about my deep passions, although I love the environment very much, I have a deeper passion which is uh, a concern for humanity alongside creation and what happens to us. I I don't believe in in Mother Earth, so for me, I I worship God, not the creation, but absolutely, there are people there who worship the creation as the ultimate existence. Yeah, well, I suppose that also comes back to what we were looking at in Genesis 1 before, about the distinction between God and his creation, Mm -hmm. that to worship creation is actually worshipping something that he's created rather than the creator himself. Now, interestingly, Andrew Bolt wrote an opinion piece a few years back called Die for the Sake of the Planet, where he was responding to what he calls eco-fascism. He quotes famed environmentalist James Lovelock, who said, our primary obligation is to the living earth, humankind comes second. So how do the scriptures inform this view? Well, I used to get into um, a band called John Butler Trio. Uh, they were kind of like an indie political band that 
sung songs about the environment. And I think any band that can have the words regional forest agreement in one of their songs, like, you you know, deserves your respect. But they have... Um, <laughs> did, did they do a rhyme to that or was it... Well, they just called it the RFA. But, you know, like oh, okay, they were referencing right. the RFA. And I was like, wow, regional forest agreement. Like, these guys know their stuff. Though they didn't like it so much. And... Um, and I, anyway, they wrote a song called uh, Respect Your Mother, right? And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like, you know, it's the kind of thing you might give to your mum for Mother's Day. But, of course, then as you actually get into the lyrics, they're talking about Mother Earth. Uh, and it's another example of this worship of creation. How do the scriptures speak to that? Well, the, the scriptures, I guess, they affirm that creation is good. But the reason I respect the earth or the reason I, I love the earth and enjoy it is because of how because it was created by God and how it reflects God, not because it's worthy in and of itself. Hmm. Okay, yeah. Well, questions just come in actually which relates to that too. So to what extent should Christians lobby and fight for the protection of the environment? So should Christians chain themselves to a bulldozer? Well, I, I've had to extricate some people once who did that. And, and This is when you were working for the church or working for the... No, working... <laughs> For the Vic Forest. As Vic Forest, should a Christian chain themselves to a tree? I think it's important, very important that Christians engage with the issue. I think there's ways in which you go about it. So me personally as a Christian, I wouldn't chain myself to a tree. Would I protest certain policies or things like that? Yes, I would. I, I wouldn't judge those who did it. But I think so I, but I think Christians do have responsibility. Like I do think if we care and i think the accusation of christians that sometimes at least in the last hundred years we've been pretty apathetic i think holds a degree of truth i think christians should be leading the way and we should be we are called to be earth keepers we should be leading if you will the environmental charge in terms of caring for the earth so i in that sense i'm a i'm a 10 right in terms of how you go about doing that or what does that look like there might be cases for individuals to change themselves to trees. But I don't think Christians en masse should all go down to Tassie and go down the Styx Valley and just go... And there's like 5,000 Christians all change themselves to four trees. Like, I don't think... Well, that wouldn't that make a big statement? I think it would make a statement. But I guess there's other ways of making a statement. I do... Like, so Christians have been responsible in informing and influencing policy in different ways. You look at the slave trade or you look at the exploiting sex workers and things like that. Christians have been at the forefront of that. I do think Christians should be at the forefront in terms of environmental care. I'm mean, again, if, you, if these guys go out and chain themselves to trees or people at the end of your show go, you know what, I'm just going to chain myself to a tree. Look, I'll bring them, I'll bring them food. <laughs> but I'm, I'm personally not going to... Necessarily join them. No, yeah. not, not at this point. But it's not inconsistent with the Christian imperative to care for the environment, no. though, is it? No, it's not. But it also comes to legality as well. So you've got to, as a Christian, decide at what point you're going to cross the line of what's legal and what isn't legal. So part of my role as a civil culturalist was, like, I had to arrest people at different points and there was times when I legally could have arrested someone but chose not to. There's times when there, there were people... There's a guy I played tennis with uh, on a weekend, a small country town. He, he, was, he did something illegal. I, had, I didn't arrest him per se, but I did say to him, look, you've got 12 hours to bring yourself down to the station. You're going to turn yourself in. Um, that was really hard for me. I mean, he then turned up at the office with a shotgun looking for me. So that's a different story, but... Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's he, wasn't, he was he wasn't looking for looking for targets, was he? Or he wasn't was he looking doing? for a reference. He was looking for a reference. <laughs> yeah. I mean, regardless of legality or not, there, yeah. there's still a rightness or a wrongness for caring for the environment. I agree yeah, with that. Yeah. Maybe we should open up for some questions from our live audience here today. Um, there's a question at the back. Yes. Uh, Matt, 
questions where it would seem like the needs of the environment directly conflict with the needs of people and communities? I think that's an excellent question. I think First, I'd make the question a larger question and go, well, let me think about it globally. And I think we tend not to do that. I tend not to do that. So I tend to think about my immediate and my immediate surrounds. Um, and then, you know, I think within the once you get that scale, I, I guess for me it would be case by case. I'm not going to make a blanket well, statement. Couldn't, I mean, wouldn't the, the concept of dominion or subdue help in answering that or assessing those questions? Sure. In terms of subdue or dominion, so to rule to set limits, to care, protect, serve. I, I don't think we elevate that over our God-given obligation to protect, serve, care for humanity. So I don't think... So I think you hold both uh, at the same time as much as, as much as possible. I think we care for the environment to the same degree that we care for the homeless. So how you work that out, I think... Is it, is it much well, I mean, I suppose it relates to this question that, that James Lovelock has raised. With our primary obligation is to the living earth, humankind comes second. Sure. Where, whereas perhaps a Christian perspective would be looking at that humankind is uh, in, a, in a privileged position, but that doesn't mean that we uh, neglect or destroy the environment. But there's a, there's a, obviously, there's a tension that's created there, but that doesn't mean that, that human interests are never considered. No, I think we should consider our neighbours and, and how our impact and our actions, our choices, infect those around us. Uh, what, I, what I think I tend to do, my natural instinct, is to think about perhaps how my choices affect my neighbour or my local neighbour, not necessarily how my choices impact the environment. So that, for me, has been a, a journey. I had the opportunity to, um, to input on a uh, forestry program for Malawi, and the issues facing, say, a country like Malawi are very different to the issues facing Australia. So in Malawi, how do you care for your forests when what you're most concerned about is the fact that you need fuel to cook your food so you can eat for today, not not how can I preserve these trees and you know care about carbon sequestration and things like that. So I think there's a great challenge within that too. And as you look at you know, someone from Malawi in the eyes and go, I can see you're hungry, you're going to move, you're going to understand where they're coming from. But at the same time, you go within that, we've still got this land, we still need to be creative about how we use it in a way that that allows it to flourish and continue. So come back to the idea of fruitfulness. We need the land to be fruitful. Who wants to be the person to eat, if you will, the last acorn? Like, you know, we've got to, while we consume at the same time, we've got to have in our minds... How is how we are acting and the choices that we make? How is it affecting the Earth's ability to be fruitful? So, subdue or sustain environmental conservation in the scriptures. Your final comments, James. For my final comment would be: Well, uh, for me, my challenge is to actually do something, mm. not just to engage the issue intellectually, but actually go as a Christian. It's imperative that my life actually reflects my values and what I care about in mm. terms of the choices I make. Let me leave you with the logos for the day. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. I look forward to you joining us for Logos Live next time. Please thank our guest today, James Hornby. (laughs) 